Jules. A good portion of you probably know me as the children's director here at Hope, and um, I'm usually running around on a Sunday with a little shadow behind me, which is my one-year-old daughter, and then my three-year-old son's usually a few steps ahead, just causing havoc. Um, or if you're a parent, I'm speaking in an octave and a half above my normal speaking voice, so I'm hopefully not going to just use mommy voice on you this whole talk. Um, and I do want to apologize because I got sick this weekend, of course, and uh, I was getting a little desperate this morning. I was gargling salt water while Googling, will apple cider vinegar cure everything I have? And uh, I think with the power of prayer and some uh, Hall's cough drops, we will hopefully get through this. <sighs> so during Advent, we have been going through the Christmas story, focusing on a different value each week. Preparation, joy, hope, and today I'm going to be giving a brief talk on love. And the passage that Craig assigned to love is perhaps one of the most popular verses in all of the Bible, John 3.16. And as I was uh, reflecting on this verse, I was realizing that that familiarity will probably be the biggest obstacle to us really understanding the truth of this passage. So my prayer for this talk is that the Holy Spirit um, will give us a new eyes and fresh perspective for us to reimagine what it means for God to love the world. So John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Because I only have a few moments, I'm only going to focus on three words in that verse um, and hopefully weave those words into the Christmas story. So first up, God. For God so loved the world. David Foster Wallace, in his famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, opens with this joke. There were two young fish swimming along, and they happened to meet an older fish, swimming in a different direction. The older fish nods to the two younger ones and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim along and eventually one of them turns to the other and asks, what is water? And of course, the humorous premise is that despite living in it, fish don't know what water is. And David Foster Wallace uses this joke as an illustration of the human condition. We are fish living in water, stuck in the status quo, all living in this discontentment malaise that we accept as reality. Petty, frustrating crap that composes most of our day. We wake up, we go to our job, we get mad at the clerk at the grocery store for not moving fast enough, we get mad at our kids for not moving fast enough, we go home, we eat dinner, we go to sleep, we wake up and do it all over again. And uh, you probably know we don't have to live that way. And David Foster Wallace's whole thesis of the speech is that that is the power of education, that we can understand that we are fish living in this water, living in this discontentment malaise, and we can choose to live differently. And it's powerful, and he makes a lot of really good points in the speech. I highly recommend listening to it. But as as I've thought about it more, I actually think David Foster Wallace doesn't mention the most important piece in his thesis. 
A fish can never know about reality outside of water. Not even an older, wiser fish will know, unless a non-fish shows him, unless he has an experience outside of the fishbowl, outside of water. In order for us as humans to decenter our lives, we need something entirely outside of our water. And if you look at the narrative of Scripture, what the Bible presents, that's God. In the Christmas story, it's Jesus coming down to us, showing us a new way to live. But it's always God who's doing the initiating. The Apostle John says we can only love because God loved us first. And in this text, it clearly lays out that God is the one who is sending his son as the Savior. So as we look at this text with fresh eyes, the very first word I want us to reimagine is that it begins with God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Love begins with God. Christmas is often referred to as the season of giving, season of giving, and um, you probably have heard the phrase, it's better to give than to receive. And I don't want to get in trouble for this because I am not discouraging you from giving. But the primary starting point for Christians is not giving, it's receiving. God gives love. We receive love. And that love changes us. The Bible says that while we were still enemies to God, he loved us and died for us. It is God who initiates. The Christian story is not about what we did to get to God, whether that's giving enough money or being a good enough person to convince God to be good back to us. You know, God loved you so much that he came down. We need something outside of the fishbowl to reach in and show us this is water. You don't have to swim in the discontentment and malaise, but we ourselves can't do it alone, and another older fish can't do it for us. Education can only take us so far. We need to have an experience with something outside of the fishbowl. We need to have an experience with God, and God is the one who has initiated it. God comes down to us in the Christmas story. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The second word I want us to reimagine is the word love. What can we learn about love in this Christmas story? So there are two quick things, and they both center around one of the all-time villains in the Bible, King Herod. So just to quickly summarize the second part, of the Christmas story. Astrologers, wise men, magi, they come from the east because they've seen a star in the sky that they believe is professing that a king has been born. And they go to the existing king, King Herod, and ask, where's the new king that has been born? Bad idea. You don't go to an existing king asking where the new king has been born. And King Herod who already has a history of violence, just goes ballistic. He orders what is essentially a mass murder. Any child under the age of two 
is to be killed. Mary and Joseph receive word and a dream to escape, where they become refugees in Egypt. They have to travel 300 miles away through the desert to become refugees. It's a jarring story. Really consider for a minute the degree of hardship and evil in the Christmas story. I think we have this sanitized version of events and forget about the incredible suffering and trauma that occurs in the Christmas story. So what can we learn about love in this story? One, Herod is a person of privilege who enjoys the benefits of power. And upon hearing the birth of Jesus, he immediately recognizes what I want us to understand today. The birth of Jesus, God's love, is a threat to the status quo. The status quo of the world order that benefits the powerful at the cost to the weak. Because if what we believe as Christians is true, if Jesus is king, then that threatens the powerful. It threatens any kingdom on earth. It threatens our own kingdoms that we have built for ourselves. It threatens the idea that we are the center of the universe. Herod understood this and did everything in his power to stop it. He used the tools of the powerful. Oppression, coercion, death, but love won out. And as we look look at all the kings of today, the kings of politics, of the business world, the kings that wield both hard and soft power, the kings of wealth and beauty and influence, we might even envy them at times, but their kingdoms will not last because he alone is king. The second observation in this Christmas story is that love is with us in trials. This is not your Norman Walkwell Americana Christmas story. It's not sentimental. It is bloody. It is brutal. It is too often what the world looks like. Imagine Mary in the midst of a mass murder, clutching her baby, leaving everything and everyone she knows behind, fleeing into the desert. I wonder what she was thinking. I wonder if she heard the babies cry as they were being killed. I wonder if she ever questioned God, if she ever thought, how in the world is this God's plan? This story is clear evidence that when we say yes to God, that does not mean everything in our life will go as we planned. God's love does not preclude us from suffering. I wonder if in the midst of suffering, some of you have ever asked those questions. I certainly have. I was 19 years old when my best friend suddenly died, and I was left with questions. How could I have prevented it? How did God let this happen? How in the world is this God's plan? We have all experienced death and disappointment and defeat. Where is God? when our dreams just aren't coming true, or when our nightmares are coming true, where is Emmanuel? Where is God with us? 
we see God with us in this Christmas story because he subjected himself to being human. And as we see in the story, being human means experiencing all the suffering and terror that we experience. In this Christmas story, we see that God's love does not prevent us from experiencing hardship, but rather in the hardship, God is with us. Emmanuel. Isaiah 53 describes how Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. God knows your pain. He is familiar with your pain. But Isaiah 53 continues, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, and by his wounds we are healed. It was love that was born that day on Christmas, love that grew up, lived a life free from sin, and ultimately died because of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The last word I want us to reimagine in this passage is the world. For God so loved the world. I think we have a developed sense of what it means for God to love me, but what does it mean for God to love not only me personally, but for God to love the world? Jeremiah and I visited Indonesia a few years ago, and where we were staying... was ground zero for the 2004 Christmas Day earthquake and tsunami that killed 200,000 people. One of the most deadly natural disasters ever recorded. You don't have to look closely to recognize the deep, deep brokenness of this world. There is brokenness in ourselves, and the most evil figures of human history, the leaders that have directed genocides and state-sponsored famines, but brokenness of the world is even deeper and affects the very ground that we stand on, the ground that moves on tectonic plates, that cause earthquakes, that cause tsunamis, that cause unimaginable death and destruction. All of the world is broken. Paul describes this in Romans 8 when he says, All of creation is groaning as if in the pains of childbirth, waiting for their redemption. But God's love means that we have hope that new creation can happen. God's love and this hope means that a different worldview is possible, where the powerful, the corrupt, the evil, the Herods, they do not win. Death and decay of this world does not have the last word because God loves the world and he has a plan to redeem it. It means renewal of this present order, redemption for the broken world and wholeness to our broken souls. As Christians, we believe Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us changes everything because things are messed up and we need mercy and justice personally, systematically, institutionally, globally, 
all of creation. From the time I yelled at my kids for being too loud before I had my coffee, to the institutional sin of the prison system, to the tectonic plates that shift below our feet, all of creation, the whole world, needs a savior that does not swim in the same water as us, that is not a fish, but is outside of our fishbowl, a savior that comes down to us at Christmas. A savior's love that initiates, that threatens the status quo, that is with us in trials, a savior's love that redeems the world. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life.